Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. Matthew Crawford is a mechanic, author of Shop Class at Southcraft. He is also author of the latest book called Why We Drive, which is an incredible book. The latest book, of course, is about you know his philosophy of the open road. He majored in physics at UC Santa Barbara, earned a PhD in political philosophy from the University of Chicago. And Matthew, I got to believe you love driving cars, don't you? I do. <clears throat> Thanks for having me on the show, George. Yeah, cars, uh, motorcycles, skateboards, <laughs> you name it. <laughs> what was the first car you ever owned? First car I had was a 1963 Beetle, and I bought it before I even had a driver's license. I was already working at a Porsche shop, um, just doing kind of menial labor. And a VW Bug was about as close as I was going to get to a Porsche. I got a mine was a 1968 Ford Mustang, brand new. Dad worked at Ford Motor Company in Dearborn, and he got a substantial discount. And he said, "This is going to be for your high school graduation present." And he buys me this beautiful blue Mustang, which I wish I still kept. Nice. Those were fun times. Tell me about your work and what you've been doing. Well, I've just written this book, uh, Why We Drive, <clears throat> and uh, it's a number of things. I guess I, I'm just very intrigued by driving. I think it's an interesting activity that calls on a lot of uh, human capacities that we we don't always think about. It just you know it becomes kind of automatic. Um, but uh, I guess what prompted the inquiry partly was this big push for driverless cars. Oh, boy. I know. Yeah. Well, you just heard that study I just had that uh, these driverless cars aren't all that they're, you know, made up to be. Yeah, there's been a lot of hype um, surrounding this. And w- one thing that's become clear is that the push for driverless cars is not a response to consumer demand. It's not like people are, are clamoring for this. It's more of a top-down project. So, like when Pew has asked, done, done surveys asking people about their attitudes, um, they still don't trust the technology. Um, also, when you ask people if they like to drive or think it's a chore, about a third think it's a chore, and about two-thirds uh, seem to enjoy it. Next hour, we're going to open up our phone lines, Matthew, and one of the groups I'm going to ask to call you are truck drivers because there's also that big movement for driverless trucks. And is this an effort to save money? I mean, why would they even think about driverless vehicles? What's, What's the benefit? Well, you mentioned trucks there. It seems like, I mean, obviously the point is to get rid of truck drivers. Yeah. Um, but more broadly, there's this premise that human beings are terrible drivers. That's the sort of, that's what you hear. And, um, you know, so it's a kind of technocratic project to idiot-proof everything, and they proceed by treating us like idiots. And there's a kind of vicious circle here where the more you automate things, the more our skills atrophy for lack of use, which leads to demands for further automation. Uh, so, you know, at the at the end point of that trajectory, we're just kind of passive and dependent creatures. Somewhere in the great unknown, somebody came up with the initial idea for driverless vehicles. Who might that have been? Do we know? 
Oh, boy. I mean, you could go all the way back to, like, the Jetsons cartoon, right? I mean, yeah. Well. It's been something we've been imagining forever, and somehow we identify it with the future. What happened to jetpacks, though? Because personally, I would love that. Th- Those would have been fun. Yeah. <laughs> I'd end up probably burning my hiney with one of those things, but uh, wouldn't it be great to be able to just go, and you're, where are you going to get? But think about if you ever got into an accident with somebody else up there, you're gone unless you had a parachute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think we're ready for jetpacks. We're uh, we become too dumb. But I mean, I mean, is there an economic? Well, let's push the the truck drivers aside for a moment. Is there an economic benefit to the passenger driverless cars? Well, I mean, think about it. These cars are going to be very expensive. Um, part of those costs will be a public cost because what we're talking about is really redoing the whole road infrastructure to accommodate these things. Won't they need some kind of electrical system in the pavement? Well, there are going to be a bunch of sensors in the pavement you know, that they'll pick up as they go along. And the thing is <clears throat> that all the sort of promised gains in um, traffic flow, which is, you know, that's a real possibility, to realize those gains, um, you have to have essentially everybody in a driverless car because they have to coordinate with one another. And you can't have, you know, people like you and me dashing in between them and their Mustang and messing up the whole thing. So it kind of pushes toward all or nothing. Um, And uh, there was this one incident where a Google car came up to an intersection and it came to a stop it was a four-way stop and so it was waiting for the other cars to come to a complete stop before going through because you know it's a rule follower it's a robot but of course that's not what people do Um, they don't come to a complete stop so the car got paralyzed it just sort of froze and melted down there And the head Google guy in charge, he said that what he had learned from this is that human beings need to be less idiotic, by which he meant they need to act more like robots. And that's, I think that's a conclusion that comes very easily if you regard the mind as basically an inferior version of a computer. What about the poor woman back in March of 2018, the 49-year-old lady from Arizona who gets killed by a self-driving Uber car because it wasn't able to recognize that the pedestrian had a jaywalk and was, uh, you know, jaywalking and, you know, hit the lady and killed her? Yeah, there's been a few of those incidents. But think about how much pressure there is to be first to market with this stuff, because whoever gets there first is going to be basically a monopoly, because it's one of these sort of platform type. Is it going to happen, Matthew? I think it's way off, and I think there's enough kind of skepticism building now. Uh, I think some of the investors are starting to pull out, and we're realizing just how expensive and kind of unnecessary this is because, in fact, um, you know, human beings are pretty good at doing this. We've figured it out. And I, you know, happen to like getting into a car when I drive, taking some time to think about my day's events, what I'm going to do while I'm paying attention to traffic and uh, knock on wood, things have been safe. Uh, But I like driving. I think it's relaxing, don't you? Yeah, 
and and think, I mean, think about a road trip where you may not even <clears throat> have a, a definite destination in mind, but there's this kind of throwing yourself out into the world. You're roaming, and um, I find roaming like the best kind of antidote to the confinement of work and family, and you know, there's something about getting out on the road that. Um, it just kind of rejuvenates you. Technically, Matthew, how do driverless vehicles work? You get well, in it, you get in it, what happens? Well, they've got, they're bristling with sensors, um, like a dozen cameras, um, LIDAR, which is a, a form of radar, basically, um, sound sensors, and then each one of these has to be basically a rolling supercomputer to process all this data in real time, and we're talking just gobs and gobs of data. Are they electric or gasoline? Oh, well, they could be either. You know, the the, the type of power plant they have is sort of irrelevant to the, the driverless okay. aspect of it. Yeah. Who fills up the tank if it's got gasoline needs? <laughs> well... The driverless... <laughs> the driver? I mean, what happens? Uh, we're gonna have we're gonna have driverless uh, gasoline stations one day too. Yeah, see, questions like that. Um, <clears throat> I don't think it's all been worked out. And, and and how does the car start? I mean, our car now, you got a key or a push button. You start your car and off you go. I mean, how's how's the car gonna start? Yeah, maybe it'll be like a computer where you push the um, start button both to stop it and to start it. And who's gonna start it? Yeah, well, I don't know. Presumably, the operator would have some control. Um, what operator? I mean, what if, what if you have an Uber out there? Where's where's it coming from? Who's going to start it up? Who's going to stop it? Yeah. Well, these. Yeah, you're asking the right questions. And and you mentioned Uber. Um, so so one effect of Uber and the other ride hailing. Uh, apps has been a big increase in congestion because think about it you 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 know a car shows up within a few minutes almost like magic and the only way they're able to do that is to flood the streets with um with cars and in new york city from 2013 to 17 when the city was sort of getting uberized the number of for hire vehicles increased by 59 percent and the number of unoccupied vehicles went up by 81%. Jeez. So, so the you know, like the New York City uh, Transportation uh, Department is, is is very upset about this, and for good reason. And then, meanwhile, the subway is crumbling, right, for lack of investment. Has Uber killed the cab business? I don't know what the numbers are, but well, I'm they just certainly tried. Um, yeah, and unless this, you know, the various jurisdictions step up and try to offer some kind of you know, Pro protection. Yeah, a more uh, sort of even competitive playing field. And the thing about it is, so Ubers are super cheap, right? They're often about half the price of a cab. Yes, exactly. So you ask, how is that possible? Well, a uh, <clears throat> transportation consultant did a study of Uber's economics. And discovered that the only reason they can charge such low fares is because of massive subsidies by the early investors 
So in other words, the investors are, pay, are paying your fare, or about half of it. And there's, it's not like Uber has discovered efficiencies that previously eluded the taxi industry. Um, so, so later investors now, you know, the, the, the company sort of grew exponentially, and that attracts further investment. And so basically at that point it becomes like a Ponzi scheme with later investors you know, taking, up <laughs> taking out the ones that came in. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, that's something else. And then, you know, Lyft jumped in. But who is asleep at the cab companies who should have come up with an Uber-type app for Yellow yeah. Cab and places like that? Yeah, no, no you're right. Because it's not, it's not like a complicated technology. It isn't really a technology uh, that's doing this. It's more a form of kind of labor arbitrage where you're taking these um, sort of gig economy drivers who aren't really invested in the job. Furthermore, they're usually leasing their cars, and they get tied into these often pretty abusive lease agreements that it's very hard to get out of. And so now you're basically like a sharecropper working for Uber. And, you know, they're often immigrants. They're not very savvy financially. Um, so they don't quite know what they're getting into. Right. But they need a they need a job. They need quick money. And it's a quick way to do it because I'm told by some of the drivers that Uber or Lyft just pops the money in their bank account and it's there. Yeah. Yep. Now, in your book, you talk about the, you've traveled around to different scenes and places like that. Uh, what, what did you find in the book, Why We Drive? What was the most exciting aspect of it for you? Yeah, so I went to different motorsport scenes. This is sort of grassroots motorsport, small stuff, and and uh, different kind of automotive subcultures. And one thing that was very attractive is that, um, like in a, this desert race they do in Nevada, it's been going on for, for generations. It's the same families come back and they man these race checkpoints, like the same checkpoints. Um, you know, it would be fathers and daughters, you know, sort of passing this on. And they have a very keen sense of being responsible, not just for the desert, but for, you know, the relationship with the townspeople and the ranchers, and it's this activity they love. And it's, and it's this picture of, um, of self-government, really, because there's no bureaucracy, there's no referee to appeal to when, you know, something goes wrong. It's just... Um, people kind of working things out, uh, and that was—I thought—that was a nice kind of glimpse into um, what you might call like the the sort of the, uh, the nursery of the democratic character when people um, just learn to cooperate and uh, and work it out. Matthew, you've got an issue with speed limits and red light cameras. I don't like red light cameras, but speed limits don't bother me. Why does it bother you? Well, not speed limits in general, but the thing is, uh, they're often set below the sort of reasonable speed that's dictated by the features of the road. In fact, the former head of the National Transportation Safety Administration, after he quit that job, he published a paper in which he said that most speed limits in America are set about 15 miles an hour too slow. And it's interesting Hmm. because the speed that people actually drive is not very sensitive to the speed limit. 
we, we tend to take our cues from, for example, the width of the lanes. And there's actually a standard for, you know, if, it, if it's a 55 mile an hour speed limit, you have a certain lane width. And, you know, if it's narrower, you got to go slower because it's harder to stay near the center of the lane. Well, to take an example, the Washington, uh, George Washington Parkway in D.C., the lanes are built to the 55 mile an hour standard, but the speed limit is 45. So people are driving, you know, faster, and the speed limit is deliberately set in order to sort of maximize infractions and it's a notorious speed trap. We've, we've got a situation that because of COVID-19, so many people are outside of their houses jogging and walking their dogs and stuff because they're tired of being cooped up. But uh, at a certain time, uh, going west uh, in my neighborhood, the sun is just notorious at 4 or 5 o'clock. And if you've got hundreds of people out jogging and walking and stuff, a lot of them, Matthew don't really pay attention to you, and so they'll just walk right across the street. And i got to tell you, with the sun hitting you right in the eyes and all these people out there, you got to be really careful because you can't see these people. I mean, and it's so easy to hit somebody. Yeah, there's really no substitute for paying attention. And that's kind of, that's a a big crisis, right, is distracted driving because once the smartphone came along. Oh, my God, yeah. It's like this dopamine candy coming at you, and the windshield just starts to seem like one more screen, but it can't compete with the stuff that's on your phone. So that's a real problem. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern, and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.